Our passage this morning is Matthew chapter 21. We will start in verse 28 and we will read through 22 verse 14. Matthew 21 starting in verse 28. Matthew 21, 28, and the word of the Lord says this. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go, to, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same, and he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. And we will stop there, and we will read the other parables in a little bit. But I want to just walk through each parable and then make some closing comments to observations from these parables at the end. And so in this parable, the first of the three parables we have this morning, they are fairly straightforward, really. It's not hard to understand this plot between the father and the two sons. Right, we're still in the aftermath of Jesus rearranging the temple. He had just gone into the temple and flipped the tables and driven out the money changers and those who bought and sold. And Jesus, well, the authorities didn't like Jesus doing that. And so they asked him, under what authority are you doing this? And they asked him the question and Jesus asked them a question in response. I'll ask you a question. If you answer it, I'll tell you. What authority was John the Baptist ministering under? Was his authority from heaven or was it from men? Well, they refused to answer that, and so Jesus didn't answer them. But here, in this parable, as this happens right after that question about Jesus' authority, we see Jesus answering that question. We see him telling whose authority it actually was that John the Baptist was using. We see Jesus saying that this was John ministering from heaven, the way of righteousness, it says. You might have caught that in verse 32. And so Jesus is really, he's answering his own question here. One, he's telling them, this was John ministering. You should have listened to him. This was from God. He wasn't just saying these things as his own opinion. This was him following God, and you should have followed God and listened as well. So they didn't believe John. But there were people who did believe John. There were tax collectors and prostitutes who did believe the message, right? They were the ones considered the outsiders, the ones who were uh, the the lowly, the, the unclean, right? And they weren't the ones obeying the law. They weren't the ones doing what God wanted. And yet, they were the ones who believed. 
and the ones who were a part of the kingdom of God. And so it was these people, the ones who believed, who heard the message and believed that were a part of the kingdom. They realized that they were in the wrong, that they were like this first son. They had said no, they had been disobeying God at the first, but then they realized through the message that they were in sin, that they had done something wrong, and they turned and they followed God. But that's not how the religious leaders responded. They heard the same message that they were sinners and not following God, and what did they do? Well, they said, no, that's not me. I am doing what I'm supposed to do. They didn't humble themselves. They thought they were in the right, but really, even though some of their words were right, their lifestyle didn't match up. They weren't doing what they said they believed. They didn't believe the message and follow it. And so we learn this principle from this parable, and really we'll see it in the other parables as well, that how we respond to the message of God is what determines whether we are a part of the kingdom of God. You'll notice that phrase. It, it talks about the sons doing the will of the Father, and then it talks about how do you do the will of the Father? Well, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they believed. And so there's this connection between the belief and doing the will of the Father. So when we hear the word of God, our first response must be to believe that it is true. And if it's true, then it's saying something about us. It's saying how we need to be living, who we are, how we need the Lamb of God really to come and take away our sins. And that was the message of John the Baptist. We can know that the message of the Bible is true. We can know what it is in our heads, but if it's not leading us closer to God, if it's not leading us to know him more and do his will, then we're more like the Pharisees than we are like Christians. And so that's why it's so important to hear the word, to believe the word, and to be doers of the word. Look at the second parable with me, verse 33 in chapter 21. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to another tenant who will give him the fruits in their seasons. And Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. 
And one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although he was seeking, they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. And so in this parable, there's another vineyard. But instead of the father sending his sons out to work the vineyard, in this parable, the, the owner leases the vineyard out to workers, and they're supposed to take care of it and give the fruit to the master when he returns. And they do take care of the vineyard, but they don't give any of the fruit to the master. He sends servants to them to collect it. They beat them. They kill them. He sends more. He eventually sends his son, and they kill him as well. And so this is fairly straightforward as well, but do you remember, you remember when David sinned with Bathsheba? You remember he was in unrepentant sin, right? And then Nathan the prophet comes to him to confront him about his sin, but he doesn't directly talk to him about it. What does he do? He tells him a story, right? You remember the story. He draws in David. He tells him about the lamb that was taken and killed by this one man. And David is angry. He wants to condemn that man. And Nathan turns and says, you are that man. Well, Jesus is really, he's doing the same thing here. He's drawn them in to this story. The Pharisees are getting angry. They're getting angry. Jesus asks, what should be done to these owners? They say, he will put those wretches to a miserable death. The Pharisees pronounce judgment on the workers, and then Jesus essentially is looking at them and telling them, you are that man. You are those workers. That's what's going on with this quote, starting in verse 42. This is a quote from Psalm 118. The Pharisees would have been familiar with it, that this was a psalm about David, how David was a rejected king. You remember how there were people who thought, oh, he doesn't look like a king. Or there were people who thought, who, he's too young, he's just a boy, he can't do mighty things for God. But what did God do? God raised him up. And God worked through him and exalted him. Well, Jesus is telling the Pharisees, you're just like those people who rejected King David. You also are just like these workers in the vineyard who reject the son, the true king, the master, because you're rejecting me. And so you're not going to be a part of the kingdom because you are rejecting me. In other words, Jesus is saying you can't reject me and be in heaven. You can't reject Jesus and expect God to be happy with you. And so here again we see this Meaning that to be a part of the kingdom means we have to believe something. We have to believe that Jesus is the cornerstone, that he is the king that's exalted. And we have to respond to him, right? And the chief priests and the Pharisees, they didn't believe that Jesus was sent from God. They rejected him. They weren't teaching the people in a way that honored God. They took what God gave them and then they turned their back on God. And Jesus condemned them for their unbelief, and they understood what Jesus was doing. They understood that these parables were about them, that Jesus was condemning them. 
But instead of responding like David, instead of being broken and sorry for their sin, they wanted to destroy the messenger, right? They are literally trying to act out that what the workers do in this parable. They are trying to destroy Jesus. And so here Jesus tells them one more parable, and that's in chapter 22, starting in verse 1. Jesus again spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner and my oxen, and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast." But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite the wedding and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. So this parable is similar to the other parables, but the setting is different. Here a king is calling the guests to the wedding feast. They've been invited. They've got the RSVP hanging on the side of the fridge. And then the messengers come, and they either ignore them or they kill them. Right? That's how they respond in this parable. And just as a side note, as messengers response from people as we give the call of the king, either, either ignoring us or not caring about what we're saying or a reaction of hostility against the messenger. But the king doesn't like his messengers being treated like that, so he goes and he destroys those cities that they are in of these people that have killed his messengers. And so this is, once again, a judgment against those who are rejecting Jesus. If you remember, that's been a theme, really, since Jesus rode in on the donkey until he will go to the cross. That's a theme of judgment that happens repeatedly throughout this last week before the cross. But in this parable, Jesus doesn't just tell us about the people who aren't in the kingdom. That's uh, been talked about a lot in these parables, but he, he talks more in depth in this parable about what it means to be a part of the kingdom. Who are these people who are in the kingdom? Just like the tax collectors, the prostitutes who believed in the first parable, in this parable, the servants, they go out to the, the highways, the byways, and they find the good and the bad, and they invite them, and they come to the feast, and they're there. They're a part of the wedding feast. They respond to the call of the king. And this is really a picture of the gospel. This is who is a part of the kingdom of 
God, the good news goes out to all kinds of people. It doesn't matter what your background is, whether you've lived what others would call a good life or a terrible life, right? God sends his messengers to proclaim this good news to everyone. And how do we become a part of the kingdom? How do we get to the wedding feast? Well, we respond, we believe, and we come. This is the gospel, the offer of salvation to everyone, regardless of background or ethnicity. Jesus calls everyone to himself. And if you believe this, you will be saved. Don't ignore it like the people who were in this parable. They ignored it. Don't fight against it. This is the only way to be saved is by responding to the call of God, responding to his message. And so that's what the people do in the parable. They respond. The wedding hall is filled, it says. But just like in the other parables, being a part of the kingdom means your life is changed. You can't just come to God and stay the same as you were before. Everyone uh, can come to God as they are, but they will not stay as they are. God changes us. There's a change. You actually have fruit in your life. You'll actually do what the Father says. You can't just expect to come to God and keep your lifestyle and continue to do everything you did before because Jesus says you have to count the cost and understand what it means to follow me. It means you are giving up your way of life and accepting my way of life, my commands, my instructions to follow them. And so that is really what's illustrated in verse, verses 11 through 13 with this man with, without wedding garments. If we think we can come to God and stay as we are, it's like, well, it's an insult. It's like showing up to a wedding today in shorts and a t-shirt. It's just not something you do, right? And so we can't think, it's okay, God accepts me as I am, I can keep living the life I want and still get to be in the presence of God. That's not how that works. He accepts us as we are, but he changes us. And if our life is not characterized by that fruit, that proof that we have believed, then we're in danger of actually being in rebellion of, against God and not being a part of the kingdom, but actually being cast out when the end comes. And so believe what God says, that anyone can come. Believe that coming to him means that you will give your life to obey him and do what he says. And that's what you're committing to when you become a Christian, right? That it's a whole life. It means you believe and that leads to obedience. Two separate things, but two things that go together, belief and obedience. And so we've seen the same message throughout all three parables. There's slightly different emphases. There's slightly different things that we learn. But we see that to be in the kingdom, to be the people of God, means that we believe the message of God. And then it leads to obedience. It leads us to do something. Our belief, we believe, and that faith produces works in us, in the words of James. And so in our time remaining, I want to think about two things from these parables kind of related to this, but uh, within these parables that come up. The first thing is there at the end, the last verse, 22:14. It says, many are called, but few are chosen. And simply put, the people of God, the kingdom of God, 
are people who are chosen, are people who are called by God and chosen. It doesn't say many are called, but few respond. It says many are called, but few are chosen. And that's an incredibly important phrase and use of words. It makes us think back, again, we're in Matthew, and Matthew connects so much to the Old Testament. It makes us think back about the people of Israel in the Old Testament. This is the same kind of language that was used of them. They were the chosen people of God, a chosen people, a holy nation. And so you think about how God chose Abraham and called him, how God chose Isaac and not Ishmael, how God chose Jacob and not Esau. This is how the Bible talks about God choosing his people. And we see that same language here. We see that consistent throughout the Bible that many are called and few are chosen, that God chooses, he elects would be the word we use sometimes. And sometimes when you start to talk about God choosing people or electing people, it makes people a little uneasy. It's kind of controversial causes disagreements, but I think this passage is really helpful and tells us that doesn't need to be the case. It's not something that is as controversial as sometimes we make it out to be. We read throughout the Bible that God is in complete control over everything, even salvation. Salvation belongs to the Lord. By grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. We also read throughout the Bible that people are responsible for what they do. In other words, we sin and we're responsible for that sin and we will go to hell because of it and so God being in complete control and people being completely responsible are two things we have to hold together when we think about this topic and this passage is just so helpful in how it shows us and talks about how God chooses people in other words in this parable who are the people who are chosen they're the people who hear the call and actually respond and attend the wedding feast, right? So what does that mean? The people who hear the gospel and believe are the people who are saved, and these are the people who are chosen. So we don't have to worry or spend too much time thinking about whether or not we are chosen or think about whether or not someone else is chosen. What is our responsibility, our focus, this focus of this parable, even as it teaches that God chooses and God elects, the focus here is that we must hear the message and respond and believe, and that is who is called and chosen by God. It's not, a, it's not an either or, in other words. It's a both and. Charles Spurgeon explained it like this, and I think this is really helpful. He imagined, uh, using his sanctified imagination, I would say, that as we go into heaven, right, you can see above the gates, it'll say, whoever so wills may come. This is my paraphrase, not an exact uh, quote, but he says, basically, whoever will may come. Whoever believes in the Lord will be saved. Whoever believes can come. So you enter in, you believe, you enter in through heaven, you look back over the gate, and on the other side of the sign, it says, chosen from the foundation of the world. And so these things are basically two sides of the same coin. God chooses, we come, God gets the glory. This is how the Bible talks about being chosen. And we want to be people who are in the Bible and believe the Bible. And so these are things that we need to think about, and it comes up in our passage. So what better time to 
think about it. Hopefully that uh, gets your brain thinking on that topic. There's a second thing that comes from these parables, and that is who are the people of God? Now we've already kind of answered that, but it, it doesn't just say who the people of God are. Jesus is also teaching who the people of God are not. And I think it's helpful this morning to kind of dive into that a little bit because the Pharisees clearly understood that Jesus was telling them that they were not the people of God. And that did not make them happy. And this clarification is something that Jesus really hammers home. I mean, he tells three parables to make this point. He emphasizes it throughout. Well, why would he do this? He's in the last week before the cross. We see Jesus teaching multiple times what's going to happen against the people who claim to be his people, who claim to believe in him, but really don't. He's going to bring judgment against them. He talks later, we'll read in chapter 24 and elsewhere, about the destruction of the temple. And with all this talk about judgment, Jesus is making sure we distinguish who really is the people of God. It's not just those who say or look like they're the people of God, like the religious leaders. It's not just those who were ethnically Israel, but it's those who hear the message and believe. Because you remember history, God's about to wipe out the land of Israel. We remember that happened in AD 70 as Rome came and wiped out a lot of the people and wiped out the city of Jerusalem. And so one might be tempted to think, well, what has happened to the people of God? Have they been destroyed as God's promises fallen? And Jesus is starting and wanting to emphasize this in the last week and showing that, no, God doesn't want us to get us confused. There still remains a people of God. Who are the people of God? It's not about being a certain ethnicity. It's not about being an ethnic Jew. But being the people of God is about believing the message and living a life that shows we believe the message. Because the religious leaders, they were ethnic Jews. They were told that they weren't a part of the kingdom. But it was the unexpected people who believe who are a part of the kingdom. And so this is really, this is a shift between, you might say a shift between the Old Testament and the New Testament, a shift between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The new covenant is going to be inaugurated with the death and resurrection of Jesus. And Jesus wants to make clear how we are a part of that new covenant. It's not through being a Jew, but it's through believing in Jesus. It's what do we do with Jesus? The true children of Abraham, in other words, another way to say it, the true children of Abraham are not those who come from the ethnic bloodline, but the true children of Abraham are those who inherit the promises, who have faith in the blood of Jesus. So John 8, 39, Jesus says this, and the Jews answered him, Abraham is our father, and Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works of, that Abraham did. And so being a physical descendant of Abraham doesn't make you true Israel, as Paul says in Romans 9, 6, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Galatians 3, 7 is similar in this. It says, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. 
Galatians 3, 26 through 29. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And so notice exactly what this is saying. And this is what Jesus is emphasizing even in our passage this morning. That the people who are the true offspring of Abraham are the people who are in Christ. It specifically says it doesn't matter if you are a Jew or a Gentile. The standard for being the people of God is the same for everyone under the new covenant. Jews don't come to God through some separate way or some separate standard. We all must come to God through faith, through hearing the message about Jesus, believing it, and proving it that through obedience in our lives that we actually believe it. And so this is one reason why God has dissolved the old covenant. Jesus completed it and fulfilled it, and it's passing away, as Hebrews 8.13 says. And if Jesus has fulfilled the old covenant and made it obsolete by bringing the new covenant, then that means the old covenant will not come back. The people of God will never be required to offer sacrifices again. The Jews or anyone else should not look to follow God through keeping the laws of the old covenant. This is the only way to be saved, and it is the way that we will be saved until Jesus returns through faith in Jesus. In fact, Galatians would go farther and say that if we want to return to the Old Testament law or be under the old covenant, then we will bring the curses of the Old Testament on ourselves because that's not the way to be saved. There's only one way to be saved, and it's not through being a certain ethnicity. All are sinners, and the only way to be delivered from sin is through Jesus. And those who trust Jesus to save them are the people of God. And so in those, well, not just the last point, but in the last two points— there was a lot of technical things I said, right? It's kind of uh, in-depth study of theology, but that's okay because we're people of God and we study God and the Bible. But if you need to think about that some more or listen to the sermon some more, think about it and listen to it again. But it's worth putting in the time to, to think about these things, to understand these things because Jesus and our response to Jesus matters. Jesus says in these parables that that is going to be the difference between being the people of God in the kingdom of God and not being the people of God and being cast out how we respond to Jesus. And the Pharisees, the chief priests didn't do that. And so Jesus pronounces this judgment. And that's what we see, these truths. The people of God are the those who believe the message of God and their life shows it through obedience to God. Let's pray together this morning. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your parables that you teach us through stories that are clear, that we gain so much from them. We pray that you will continue to challenge our hearts and our minds to know you more. 
to understand more and more of what it means to be the people of God, of how you how you bring about your people, how you call us to believe in obedience. God, we pray that it would remind us of the necessity of proclaiming your message, of spreading this call of the King to those around us, because you are the only way to be saved. And we pray that you will continue to guide us in your truth, as your word is truth. Continue to change us as we study your word. And we pray all this in Jesus' name.